0: Welcome to a very special episode of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We are here to honor and also to fairly assess the life of a woman that was a mind-boggling series of firsts, first female president of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, first woman mayor of San Francisco, first female U.S. Senator from California, first woman to chair the Senate Rules Committee, first woman to chair the Select Committee on Intelligence, recipient of the most popular votes by any U.S. Senate candidate in history, longest serving U.S. Senator from California, longest tenured female Senator in history. Dianne Feinstein passed away last week at the age of 90 the oldest sitting U.S. Senator and member of Congress. Her public service to California and the nation spanned some 60 plus years, over 30 in the United States Senate. To try in far little time to take stock of her monumental achievements, as well as the challenges and stress points of her political life, I'm really thrilled to welcome three public servants from California who worked very closely with Senator Feinstein and knew her well, both as a public figure and as a person, beginning with Senator Barbara Boxer. Senator Boxer was elected to the Senate on the same day as Senator Feinstein, but sworn in two months later. They were the first pair of women to serve contemporaneously as U.S. senators from the same state before joining the Senate, where Senator Boxer became the top Democrat on the Senate Ethics Committee. She served 10 years in the House, six years on the Marin County Board of Supervisors. Senator Boxer, thanks so much for joining this special episode.
1: Thank you. It's an honor.
0: Jim Lazarus, one of Senator Feinstein's longest and closest colleagues. He worked hand in hand with Senator Feinstein, in many roles over some 50 years, most recently as the state director at the office of the senator. He also served as the senior vice president for public policy at the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce, deputy mayor of San Francisco and deputy city attorney of San Francisco. Jim, thank you so much for joining.
2: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: And returning to talking feds like Senator Boxer, Dee, Dee Myers. She currently serves as senior advisor to Governor Newsom and director of the Governor's Office of Business and Economic Development. She served as White House press secretary during President Bill Clinton's first term, the first woman to hold the position. And she's the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Why Women Should Rule the World. She served as Senator Feinstein's press secretary during the senator's first run for governor in 1990. All right, a lot of introductions. Let's dive in. There are so many indelible moments in Senator Feinstein's career, but I'd like to start with the one that first brought her, I think, to the national stage, namely the moment when she became acting mayor after the assassinations of Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk, She's suddenly thrust into a huge test of leadership. She later said she was in shock. Jim, I believe you're already working in San Francisco politics at the time, if not hand in hand with her. How did she work to you know, approach the mayoralty and unite the city in the aftermath of such a cataclysmic event?
2: It was, certainly was a, just a, a time you'd never think you'd experience. I, I was a deputy city attorney to the Board of Supervisors. Senator Feinstein called me in that morning, then Supervisor Feinstein called me in that morning with the clerk of the board. There was a controversy over the uh, reappointment of a supervisor that had resigned, Dan White, who ultimately was the, the shooter in the case that killed both the mayor and Supervisor Milk, and how we would handle that meeting on, on a Monday afternoon. This was Monday morning. Nobody thinking that this could happen. You know, Maybe he tried to take his seat. His resignation wasn't lawfully executed, and so that he was going to take his seat back. And then, you know, an hour and a half later, the shots rang out. And I, I think, and Barbara might have some comments because she was over in Marin, that continuity, continuing the work of George Moscone, not becoming an interim mayor with her own agenda at that time, she was going to serve that Ultimately, her colleagues elected her for the balance of the term, which was probably another 13 or 14 months. And she was going to serve with all the same staff, all the same department heads, all the same commissioners, moving the city forward as George would have moved it forward for the balance of his term.
0: And it's fair to say, isn't it? She was identified as more moderate in a very progressive city, but she wanted not to to put her own stamp on, but give a sort of even keel and she reached out to constituencies that hadn't been her natural folks, et cetera. Do you remember that, Senator?
1: I remember a lot about that, but I'm glad Jim reminded me that she humbly decided to keep staff. What I wanna say about that time, and this is really truth, and I think Dee would agree as a woman in politics, You know, Diane proved that a woman could step forward in the harshest of circumstances, in the most difficult times, and pull a city together, and even even just get us past the worst moments. I, myself, having been in Marin, I never ran for office in San Francisco till years later when I did run um, for a house seat there. But I was watching And I went over to volunteer for Harvey Milk. And I went, I remember I went to his camera shop. I got a list of doors to knock on. And the next thing I know, he's dead. And there is Senator Feinstein. You could see it as we all know her. We could see the shock on her face. And she pulled herself together to get past the moment. She led with dignity and compassion and strength. And I think that changed the course of women in politics forever, frankly.
0: Yeah, I mean, her even keel, I think, provided a counter to critics in in those days, anyway, who might have questioned the steadiness of women leaders in times of crisis, it seems, so long ago. But that's a good segue. Actually, I'm sorry to, to gallop along so much, but there's so much to try to cover to the candidacy for governor when you, uh, Dee Dee, were were her press secretary, and she recalled, did Senator Feinstein the real bias of the way she put it, women against other women? What was that like? How did how did she deal with the bias and her sense of a kind of electorate that really wasn't quite uh, ready, perhaps, for women lo- leaders, and she had to sort of make the sale?
3: Yeah, well. There had never been a United States senator or governor from the state of California. There had never been, uh, obviously, a female president. Women were were scarce in elective office and particularly executive leadership, and she was running for governor. And so I think there were a lot of questions. But to Senator Boxer's point, John Vandycamp, the uh, then attorney general of California and very popular figure and lovely human being, was running and was assumed to be the odds-on favorite to be the Democratic nominee, in part because he was more popular with the Democratic Party base. Diane, as noted, was, could, could sometimes go her own way. And he was a man, and he was a law enforcement figure. And so everyone expected Diane to lose in the Democratic primary. And in the winter of 1992, as she was fairly far behind in the polls, The campaign ran an ad which became known as the grabber, which started with that footage that Senator and and Jim were describing of her coming out onto the steps of City Hall and saying, you know, the mayor and supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. And you hear this gasp. And then you see her. Obviously, it's it's an incredibly disturbing moment, and she doesn't hide the fact that this is an incredibly disturbing moment. And yet, she goes on in a very reassuring voice to take control. And then the ad went through the next steps. That was a turning point. the The change in the dynamics of that election based on that one poll. Because one, it was a, it was a terrific ad, but that really got your attention. But it established her leadership in the deepest crisis. Uh, and I think that that, but for that hard to know whether she would have been able to overcome that problem that women face as being able to handle or used to face. I think we've put a lot of, not all of it, but we put a lot of that to bed. Can women handle a crisis? She didn't just say it. She showed it. She didn't just talk about what had happened. We saw her in that moment and it was so powerful and nothing was ever the same in that race. And she went on to to win the Democratic nomination, but then lost the race to then Senator Pete Wilson, right? And I think a lot of it had to do with, there was some uh, you know, kind of dark clouds on the economic horizon. And we weren't sure we could trust a woman to manage the economy in times of trouble.
0: California being, at least now, the fifth largest economy in the, in the world.
3: All right, well, that was, I think, one of her few
0: and her last loss in politics was the How did it, did it shake her up
3: personally? Did it you know, give her pause about moving forward? Well, you know, she was frustrated by it and frustrated by, I think, both the opportunity, but also some mistakes that she thought she might have made in the campaign. But what happened was the day after she lost, when the recriminations and second-guessing might have begun, Senator Alan Cranston announced that he would not seek another term. And so instead of becoming the defeated Democratic candidate for governor, she became the front-runner for the United States Senate in 24 hours. And so that changed everything, and so there was never really, and whatever Diane wrestled with privately and she did, there was never the kind of public recriminations that you sometimes see after a losing campaign, and one that you know was relatively close, I think three and a half points
0: all right, so now we fast forward just a couple years to at that time a kind of you know amazing exuberant event, the election of not one but two women to the Senate of California, first time ever. So Senator Boxer, what was that like in a body sort of notorious for its men's clubs, traditions and Hari practices? You guys sort of both show up from the West Coast. What was it like for you together? Did you feel like, you know, outsiders? How did you react to increase your influence as a pair? What you know, what, what were those days like?
1: They were incredible days, but I think it's important to note that we were not close political allies. And when Alan Cranston's seat came open, I said I was going to run for it and she was going to run for it. And then the Pete Wilson seat came up for special election. And I think our people talked. I We never discussed it, but it was decided. Oh, is that
0: right? So during the campaign, oh. you... Not you were not very you didn't confer a lot.
1: Oh, during the campaign, we were joined at the hip. I'm talking about just before it turned out that there were these two seats I was going to run as a congresswoman. And when I ran, we were not in the same side of the arena in the Democratic Party. Most people don't know that she supported Louise Rennie when I ran for the House. I supported van de I mean, yeah. now we are thrown together. She's running for the Seymour seat. I'm running for Cranston. And guess what? We became so close. And I want to say, it really tears me out. I am telling you the truth. I'm not being humble. Without Anita Hill doing what she did, which opened up everyone's eyes to the Senate that had two women out of 100. And if it wasn't for Diane saying to me, I'm grabbing your hand, and we're not letting go. I never would have made it. Those two women brought me to the dance. And I'll just spend one more minute on it. Diane, as you heard from Didi and Jim, so popular. Even though, yes, she lost that race. That was a product, I think, of pure out-and-out prejudice people just weren't ready, quote-unquote.
0: For a woman executive to lead a yes, whole
1: state. They weren't ready to for a woman governor. <clears throat> there still hasn't been... 31 a, years well, later. Yeah. But the bottom line here is that when we were thrust by fate into this situation, she grabbed my hand. And she could have said to me, you know, Barbara, you're going to have a hard race. I was an asterisk. I wasn't expected to win the primary, let alone the general. was very hard. She was just out there. She was so popular. She could have easily said, you're on your own. Of course, if you need me, call me. No, we went across the state together. We were talking before cartoonists did Think They called us Thelma and Louise, Cagney and Lacey. Yeah. We had a ball. And even though we came from the different parts of the Democratic Party, we hadn't even supported each other. We became lifelong buddies and pals, and we, even with our differences in the Senate, it never turned ugly between us. We worked it out. And she once invited me, she says, let's go out to dinner and have a glass of wine. Well, I don't drink, but I tried to have a little wine. And <laughs> at that dinner, she said, you know, we're gonna have times when we don't agree. And I said, I know. And we did, you know, the war in Iraq, different policies on water. These were hard things. But we never let it get in the way.
0: why women should rule the world, I think, as somebody put it. <laughs> All right, so now we come to a point, Jim where you're very much involved. let's let's flash forward. She's in the the Senate with Senator Boxer. She did so much, but I think her signature uh, work was on the intelligence and Judiciary Committee. she filled leadership uh, positions on both. What's your sense, Jim, of why she gravitated to those roles, or was it just the happenstance of uh, political appointments?
2: I think, one, she had the opportunity on judiciary to do something as a non-lawyer, and I think that was very interesting to her. She, she always questioned attorneys, and she thought, I knew more than I did because I happened to go to law school, and I believe it, <laughs> I, I, I never knew more than Diane Feinstein. And I think the security side, the national security, you know, remember, Mayor Feinstein She'd go to crime scene. She'd have the, the suits to get out of the back of the car at a four-alarm fire. I mean, city security was important, and obviously national security was right there. And I don't know what Didi's Dee thoughts are, but it, it, it's just natural for her to be interested in those things that are so critically important to the country on the international scene.
0: Let's stick with judicial nominations, if yeah. we could, for a minute, because it also dovetails, I think, with some of the gender issues that we had been discussing and perhaps a role thrust on her as a senior woman on judiciary, because it's fair to say she experienced the turmoil of judicial nominations on both sides. She was, Biden, chair of judiciary, appointed her in the wake of the whole Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas mess. But she, toward the end of her career, came under some fire for her handling of the sexual assault allegations against to-be-justice uh, Kavanaugh. What's your sense, and anyone's, in, including you, Senator, you were w- with her daily, of, of how she viewed her role on the Judiciary Committee and how we should view her sort of legacy in that position?
2: Obviously, it was the most critical function, especially nationally at the Supreme Court, but then at California levels with the number of judges that both uh, Senator Boxer and Senator Feinstein had to recommend to a variety of presidents over the years. So it's one of the most important functions that any senator from California can do because of the mere size of that circuit. I wasn't directly involved with that issue with the information about Kavanaugh's background and, and how it became available to Senator Feinstein and what she felt she could do with that information given to her in confidence. Maybe that's for history to decide you know, and would have had made ultimately a huge difference if it had been handled in a different way by Senator Feinstein. I, I don't know. I know Barbara may have some thoughts about that.
1: Well, my only thing I could say is she she always tried to be fair to all sides. And I think everyone knew the story, and they chose to vote the way they voted. I feel she did what she thought was fair and let all the information come out. and And that's how I feel about it. But, I well remember when uh, we were together and we both discussed how important the judicial nominations were. And she said to me, well, do you want to do them all together and just have one committee? <laughs> I said, no. I said, How did you no. carve
0: them up? Yeah.
1: Well, We had two committees and we each took turns because, you know, again, I think it's one of the greatest legacies for each senator to have. And when I look at some of the people she put on, I'm so proud. And when I look at those that I put on. And so she had her committee. I had mine. Therefore, we had more people looking over the, the the pool. And I think I think it worked out well. And I think she was happy. One thing I could add for history's sake is it was now President Biden who came to the women who had just gotten elected and say, oh, my God. We need a woman on judiciary. I think he eventually put Carol Mosley Braun on there as well. I'm not positive of that. That's
0: my recollection also.
1: So, I mean, good for Joe Biden, because he realized how awful it looked to have Anita Hill before that committee without a person of color, without another woman. And I think it was just terrific, you know, to add women to that committee. And now there, there are more women, still not enough. But we, you know, when we ran, they call it the year of the woman. So Diane and I always laughed. We went from two to six women in the same. Exactly. So we say, "Oh, they tripled their numbers." Yeah, we did two to six, and we would just laugh. And and I do want to say, in a serious way, we felt the pressure to get along, to show that women could get along, to show that even if we had our differences. It wouldn't be disagreeable. And I think we met the test because now there are several women there from different states. A lot of the states have two women.
2: And you did it in a bipartisan way. You all got together. I remember seeing pictures of lunches or dinners or having a glass of wine with, with all the women that were elected then, Republicans and Democrats. We did. And I think that was a lot. You came out of nonpartisan office in Marin. In, in California, you don't run with party label for local office at the city and county level. And in the times where Barbara and Diane first ran for office, local parties couldn't even endorse in the races. Right. So it was truly nonpartisan. You bring that when you come out of California, you've got local government, you kind of bring that with you. And, and both of you, I think, in reaching out to your colleagues in that result of that year of the women and, and that the six senators made a difference. It, it was that in itself was somewhat historic.
1: I think that's a really good point about us both getting our start in local government, which is so not partisan at all. And she became the first female mayor of of San Francisco. Was she also chair of the board? She was the
2: first woman to chair the board.
1: And I was the first woman to chair the board in Marin. So, you know, we did get our start. And then, of course... Right, the
2: fault lines are
0: just different from national politics, right? You learn to... But
1: I want to add this. It was good training because when we got to the Senate, we knew you don't get anything done without 60 votes. You better learn. And when Joe Biden said to Diane and I was standing next to her, he said, Diane, you want to get this assault weapons ban through? You need 60 votes. And don't talk to me until you've locked them up, because I don't want to bring down the whole crime bill. And she looked at her supporters that she had lined up. I was among them. And she said, you heard it, you know. Let's go.
0: Well, let's stick with that for one second, because that's also, I think, her, her really big signature issue in her career. But to get it done, to get those 60, she needed to agree to a sunset on the assault weapons ban, and it sunsetted. And during those 10 years, actually, the industry really stepped up its manufacture of certain guns like AR-15s. I wonder what it was like for her at the, you know, toward later after the, the law was no longer in effect to sort of see the terrible rampage of assault shootings and what she thought should or could be done in the changed political climate.
1: Well, I'll jump in and then I'm sure she talked to Jim about, it. she Jim, she loved you so much. What a lot of people don't know, and Jim knows this very much, she saw, of course, the horror of what guns can do. And she lost two colleagues. And I don't even want to go spend a lot of time talking about it because I, I can't even do it justice. And then we were elected in 92. In 1993 comes a mass shooting. 101 California Street. Jim, do you remember that? I do. And I even remember the name of the perpetrator. I'm not going to say his name. And this man walks into a law office, Harry. He plows down everyone he could find. One of those people that died who had thrown himself over his wife's body was my son's best friend from law school.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yes. And so now here are the two of us. She's saw this I've got this and she said enough is enough we have to ban these weapons I said sign me up and so it was sort of almost not the beginning of the mass shootings but yeah it was early and so I will make this quick after she was successful but after you're right she had to concede to give it up and 10 years and all of this happened, it was like she was like a born every day to get it done again. And she never gave up trying. And I I've said on the record, so I'm going to say it on your show. I think there ought to be a bill. I've already talked to one of my Senate colleagues, my former Senate colleagues, the Diane Feinstein assault weapons ban. Come on, people, let's get this done. Who needs weapons of war in the streets?
2: I mean, frustration. And, you know, it was introduced and reintroduced and reintroduced. She never let the issue go away. But the environment nowadays, as we all know the bill would never see the floor, you know, because everything has has a cloture vote today compared to, you know, 1993, 94. And we've gone beyond the issues of, of assault weapons, too. A few years ago, senator wanted to be taken to meet some of the, the captain and, and officers at Northern Station uh, near her house because they had raised the issue with us of ghost guns. You know, and she really didn't understand. I'm not sure I do either. How you get 3D D printer and you buy this metal thing that's unregulated and the metal core comes to your house and then you have a 3D printer and you can make a gun and then you can buy a barrel adapter from South Korea that'll hold 50 rounds. And, she, you know, she wanted to regulate that. I mean, this, this has been, as you said, Barbara, a focus of her life from the time she was mayor, trying to create local control over, you know, weapons, mass destruction of weapons down to pistols. You know, she's seen the damage not only in the assassinations, but the damage on the streets of our cities all over America.
0: I have all kinds of questions. We could go for hours, but let me just start here. To me, she had a certain elegance, and it's not something you think of as a natural advantage in politics. And I wonder how she felt about the sort of hurly burly and brass knuckles, you know, retail aspect of political campaigning and infighting.
1: Well, if that's to me, I'll say you're right. She was elegant, and she. <laughs> She didn't like it if she saw somebody that wasn't taking the job with the kind of seriousness and dignity that it deserved. And I'm sure had she been involved in this dress code fight, I know where she <laughs> was. business attire, business attire. But I'll tell you a story. Um, nobody could see this on your show, Harry. But I have a watch here that Diane bought me. Okay. It's beautiful. It's a it's got a red band, it's it's quite lovely. And this was Diane. She used to buy members, her friends, things. And one day I said to her, those are beautiful earrings, Diane. And she said to me, they're not real. You can go buy those for $30. (laughs) But, you know, she was so great. But, you know, I have to say, to be honest here, is that, you know, after she bought me this beautiful watch, I started to think, oh, my God. My old watch must be really awful because <laughs> I bet she saw it and she said, That poor girl, she uh, needs something new. Like
0: like your older sister great, yeah. right, but
1: she'd do this with all the women she'd give Well, some of the women Sandra said they go up to her, say, That's a beautiful scarf. She'd take it off her neck and say, Here it's yours. That was another side of her. Also, she liked to fix people up.
0: Oh yeah, like she make uh shit offs as it were. Yeah. Yes,
1: she and, and and I think Dee Dee and Jim know about it. several couples that she put together. She always loved talking about Jerry that. Brown
2: and <laughs> Gus. Yeah. Charlotte Mayard and George yes. Schultz. Uh, those were all uh, things. Let's let's have some people over for dinner. She had an idea about matchmaking. I think you get three of those and you get some eternal reward
3: or yeah. something. But I think you know to your point, Harry. She she was she was elegant. She was always turned out. She was always dressed well. She always had on her Ferragamos but that didn't mean she was above the street, the kind of bare knuckles, right? She didn't like when people were abusive to each other or used bad language, but she wasn't above mixing it up. I mean, if people t- mistook her elegance, for lack of a better word, for not being able to handle the rough and tumble of politics, they, they, they learned pretty fast <laughs> how wrong that was. And um, I'm sure you both remember, Barbara and Jim, when Senator from Idaho tried to school Senator Feinstein on guns during that assault weapons ban debate. And she said, he said, the gentlelady from California could use some instruction on guns. And she lit out after him. And I was at the White House then, and that was, you know, the president's crime bill, very important to him. So we were all watching a lot of the deliberations. And when he stood up and said that you you knew the hammer was about to come on one down, one. He was disrespectful for her. He treated her like she needed to be schooled. And second of all, she knew plenty and much more than he did about the issue more broadly. And so, you know, that people learn very fast that don't let her kind of uh, regal bearing fool you. She will fight you and she will win.
1: I know. And Didi, I'm so glad you brought this up because I watched that a lot, that debate that they had and the way she handled him. And he he never was the same Larry. Larry Craig yeah <laughs> in
3: many ways yeah, yeah. that was the beginning of the end of, of Senator Larry Craig you know like people learn to if you're going to go toe to toe with Diane Feinstein you better have done your homework you better have got your facts straight and you better be ready for round 1 round 2 round 3 she was deep and she made the staff be deep, too, which was sometimes uh, challenging, Jim, as you know better than I.
1: She was a role model for all of us when she did that. Yeah. I just want to make that point. It wasn't just about her. She was telling us, don't let anyone, you know, try to put her around, you know?
2: And she wasn't above picking up litter in the street no. or having the staff on Saturday or Sunday in, our, in everybody's old clothes, including her doing
3: painting out graffiti when she was mayor. But to Barbara, to your point, she taught me, and I think a lot of people like me, what a woman with authority looked like and with who wasn't afraid to wield power, right? She wore her authority intentionally, and that's why she was always prepared, because she knew she was going to get challenged, and she knew she better be one step ahead of the doubters. And so watching her as a young campaign aide walk into a room, the way she held herself, the way she presented herself, the way she handled her, you know, being again, always being prepared. And the other thing I learned from her, Barbara, and I th- something that I've watched now for 30 years, women are always degrading their accomplishments, right? It's something, it's, it's a, it's a terrible habit and it and and one that does not serve us well. And, you know, Diane would, when people would come up and they would compliment her, she almost all the time would just say thank you and it was it would lift up the person giving the compliment and it would lift her up and she might then y- y- yell at you in the car on the, on the way home about the same thing but in her public face she taught women how to accept a compliment how to own their accomplishments how to wield their authority in a way that was authentic those gifts and those lessons have meant so much to me in my in my life
0: I feel like we're ending in a round of Jeopardy because the answer you just gave, Dee, might be to the question I'm about to pose, but I wanted to ask everyone to end with a few thoughts here and why don't you start, Dee, if you don't mind. How do you think she would like to be remembered?
3: I think she would like to be remembered as somebody who got things done for the people of California. And, you know, she wasn't somebody who was identity politics is sort of a pejorative, but that wasn't her thing. She she was all about working with whoever to solve the problem, bringing people together, judging people by their strengths and their accomplishments and sometimes cutting them slack, but not, you know, not overly. But I think she would like to be remembered for the big things that she got done. You know, the Desert Protection Act, the assault weapons ban, the intelligence report, which has, you know, become a, a motion picture. It was so challenging and dramatic. And so there's so many more things, so many more things. But I think that more than anything, you know, that she was as effective as anybody who ever crossed the threshold of the United States Senate.
2: I think she'll be remembered for putting the needs of the people first when she was a supervisor, when she was mayor, when she was a senator. You know, you're in a political environment and politics is always going to be part of the process. But it was never the first thing that came to her mind. The first thing was what is right, whether it was delivering service on the streets of the city or a piece of legislation in the Congress. And I think, unfortunately, I don't know if current and future generations will be raised the same way or certainly not in that environment where it's what is good for the public first and what's good for me in politics second. I think that was always Diane.
1: Well, for me, by example, she helped women truly embrace their power. And that's by example. Time after time, she showed how you do it and to not be afraid to do it. And secondly, she really taught us, I think, all members of Congress and and people who choose this work, which she said was a calling. Focus on what you want to get done and never give up. And to her last breath, huh, she made that vote to keep the government open. And to her last breath, she was fighting for this the assault weapons ban. So she's quite a legacy. It's twofold. It's, you know, her amazing role modeling for women and how much she got done and showed us how to get it done. I just think she was one of a kind. She did say her work was a calling. That's unusual, but she meant it. I'll say one last thing, which you could cut out of the show, but I think Jim would appreciate it. When I I went to her and told her I wasn't going to run the last time, you know, I had a grueling race in 2010 and pulled it off and then got sworn in and decided not to run in 2016. She's the first person I went to after my family, and I said, I just want you to know I'm going to make this announcement. I'm not going to run. She said, what? She said, why would you walk away? You're at the top of your game. You're the chair of this committee and the chair of that committee. And you've got this done and so on and so on. And I said, well, you know, I've looked at my life. I feel so blessed. 40 years in elected office. You know, that's great. I want to go home to Stu and I want to do other things and, still going to work. She was mad. And she basically said to me when she decided to run that last time and she called me for my support, I said, sign me up and I'll do whatever you want. She said, truly, Barbara, I know some people are saying, why am I doing this? It's a calling. And you think about that. You don't leave a calling. And that's honestly unusual. And that's how she viewed it.
2: Barbara, obviously, there were conversations over the last few years about especially when when her husband Dick was ill and and ultimately, you know, died a year and a half ago. And should she retire? And as you said, she saw it as a calling because we were sitting in her living room talking about this. And she says, what do you want me to do, Jim? Sit here the rest of my life in this chair looking out the window? (laughs) You know, whatever energy she had and whatever skill sets were remaining, she was going to put it to her calling, which was public service. Yep. And that seat representing Californians using, you know, where it's a seniority system and she could help a lot of Californian communities with that seniority as you did with yours until 2016.
1: Thank you. I I think, you know, she had a hard year and I'm mad for one reason about something and I'm going to say it. She could have lessened the weight on her shoulders if the Republicans had agreed to replace her on the Judiciary Committee. It would have given her more options, whether she stayed or she didn't stay. There was no way Diane Feinstein was going to walk away. I don't care what her circumstance was. When she knew she was the vote that would either get judge nominations to the floor or not. And I have said to the Republicans, on more than one occasion on TV, on podcasts, or wherever I have the opportunity, you say you love her. You should have given her that peace of mind. So, she, yes, she could have had a little less of this burden. But she was, once I heard that they weren't going to do that, I said to my husband, Diane is not going to step away because she now knows what her vote is worth. So, it's really been a journey. She had a hard year. And I want her to rest in peace. And rest in peace knowing how much she's done for the people.
0: Rest in peace, Dianne Feinstein. A calling. I think that's that puts the cap on it. We're out of time. Thank you so much, Senator Boxer, Jim Lazarus, Dee Myers, and Dianne Feinstein. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we're posting full episodes, talking books and other bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for our supporters. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether they're for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds, We'll keep talking. Talking Fez is produced by Mal Melies, associate produced by Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Our research producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Meredith McCabe, Akshay Turbaylu, and Emma Maynard. And our gratitude as always to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music? Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.